I'm Zach Dunlap, pastor of Multi-Site at Birmingham and Berkeley First. Welcome to Church Folks, the new podcast where we interview folks from our church community about who they are and what God is doing in their lives. Throughout the Bible, people are encouraged to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Continuing in that tradition, this podcast offers a forum for people to get to know one another and be inspired. Our hope is that the stories of these church folks empower you to share your stories, to inspire others, and to be a part of beloved community together. I'm here today with Rod Dunlap, who is a member of Birmingham and Berkeley First, uh, worships at the Berkeley campus, and also happens to be my dad. How's it going, Dad? Going well. Great to be with you. Thanks for doing this today. For sure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you come to know Christ? Well, for me, I guess like for a lot of people, it's a journey, but I can go back to a particular moment where I made a, you know, where I gave my life over to Christ. I mean, I was raised in the church and uh, my family was raised in a church with, um, you know, my, my siblings and my parents and my mom really felt a calling to God felt that the church that we were in was not meeting the spiritual needs. And she actually said, well, let's try other churches. And she did that. And, um, so that was part of it. And then after that, what happened was, uh, my mom and uh, each of us started going regularly to a church, uh, Presbyterian church. And the pastor just talked about the Bible as being true. He talked about God in a way, and then he would regularly ask, you know, do you want to give your life over to Christ and tell you how to do that? And I did do that in my room after a sermon one day, and uh, that changed my life. I mean, at that moment, instead of just knowing about God, I began the walk of knowing God and knowing uh, the importance of Jesus in my life. That's awesome. And uh, you talk about th this momentary experience uh, in, in the, the Methodist Wesleyan Church, we would call that an experience of justifying grace, that you moved from being God's beloved creation to God's beloved child. But um, it's also a journey, right? Um, you've got the one-time experience and you're adopted into the family officially, um, one of God's own children, um, and yet we still have highs and, and lows. Uh, when have you felt closest to God and Conversely, when have you felt furthest from God? That's that's a great question. I think I felt closest to God um, sometimes by myself praying and talking to God when I am more aware of His presence. You know, He He's always there, and I feel like it's like as I'm getting older, I'm more aware that he's always there. He's always been there. And I think that uh, as I try to do what it is he asks of me and try to listen to him, I'm more aware of it. So I guess I, I would say in a lot of ways, I'm closer now than I was years ago. And that's been kind of a gradual change. And God's the same. I just am more aware of it and try to become more aware of him. What are some ways that we can try to increase our awareness of God's presence or what God is calling us to do? Um, there was a, 
sermon years ago that really had an impact on me and I think really helped me look at God in a, a different way. And it was a sermon on a painfully honest prayer. And I think before that, I kind of felt guilty if I told God that I was upset with him. I felt like this respect for God, but he's God and I'm not, and I can't doubt him and I have to believe him and I have to follow him. So I kind of had this kind of works-based idea of following God. But, you know, in reading Psalms and in listening to the sermon about the painfully honest prayer, it's kind of this realization that God is, why would I, why would I try to point on a face to God? Like he knows Mm. my thoughts. Why am I trying to act like something that I'm not in front of God? And, And that really, help me, I think, in a great extent. So if I'm really mad at God, I mean, I get mad at God. I tell him, I express how I feel about it without the fear that, okay, here comes the lightning bolt. I'm, I'm going to die now. It's yeah. not, he loves me so much. And it's like, I don't have to pretend with God. He already knows who I am. And I think that has uh, helped me to become more honest with my faith and more honest with my doubts. And actually, in a way, when I take my doubts to God, he kind of tends to remove them more in, in a, uh, not a verbal way, but in, in a different way. And I think that um, I've grown closer to him from that. I don't remember when that was. It was, it was a long time ago at that time, but I've, I find myself trying to like Im- impress God, I guess, or try to talk with him in a particular way and realizing that I can just be honest with him. He already knows. I'm not going to fool him. He knows my thoughts. Totally. What What encouragement would you give to someone who who maybe feels like they need to be guarded before God or who is um, wondering if God even exists or if God even cares? I mean, God exists. God loves you. And that's something I think that's become more clear to me as I've, I've walked with them. So there's different places that people are at. I think some people are at a point of where they, feel like I, I, it can be anything but God. I think there's a lot of mm. people like it's anything but God. And I think kind of a lot of our society, you know, it's like, well, there's science and then there's God. Well, no, there's, it takes faith to be an atheist. It takes faith to be a believer. We all put faith in something. And if we have faith in nothing, then we're totally hopeless or we're avoiding the question. I think the question is there. Is there a God or isn't there a God? Is Jesus the way or is he not the way? Is there, you know, and they, all these things can't be true at the same time. So I feel like if we're, you know, if you're searching test God, just ask him and let him go there. Don't, don't put the block in the way. And, and mm. I think telling, having people uh, understand that, that they can just ask God is, um, you know, and, and, and there's, and listen to what it is that he tells you. I think that would be something um, that I think has helped people over the years, you know, that if you just ask the question and really look into it yourself. Yeah. That God is not this, uh, this thing. Um, God, God is a person, a person, uh, to be known a person who, uh, certainly speaks through scripture, speaks through prayer, uh, speaks even today. Um, and so if you're wrestling with doubts and questions, um, if you're angry, and maybe you wouldn't even say that you're angry at God because you wouldn't put that language to it. Um, you can bring whatever you have, whatever you're experiencing to God in prayer and know that God can handle it. God can deal with it. Your raw anger, your grief, 
your joy as well. Um, God is closer than you think. Dad, can you share of a time when you really sensed God stretching or transforming you? Yeah, I think that, um, I think through a lot of things, God has stretched and transformed us. I mean, you know, being a dad in the first place, you know, that you're like, <laughs> you're totally in over your head. You have no idea. I'm responsible for this kid to be alive and look, you're still here. So it worked out okay. And, uh, uh, but you know, and then, and then, uh, you know, Lisa and I, when we decided to, uh, to take the step and train for foster care and to bring in, uh, uh, foster kids in addition to our family, um, was a step of faith. And I think that God really, um, has just been there. I mean, just different challenges, different things that we've run into different, um, ways. So I, I think, We've grown through that, and God has shown that hey, even when the challenges are really tough, um, that he's there and has given us the strength that we need. You know, there is some some irony in that. I mean, when you and, and mom first got married, um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, she didn't want to have kids. Kids were never really a part of the game plan, and that changed about five years into your marriage. Is that right? Yeah, I mean— I think she wasn't sure that we weren't going to have kids, but she wanted to say, if you're going to marry me, I may not want to have kids. So it was kind of sure. like, not like for sure we won't. And we were so young, we were like 20 and 19, we got married. So thought of kids and all that kind of stuff was like, you know, way down the road. Whereas a lot of people, as you get married later, you think about that. So sure. I, you know, I was like, oh, I love her. I, I can't believe she still wants to go out with me, let alone uh, spend the rest <laughs> of her life with me. So let me just, <laughs> you know, so I, I guess I wasn't thinking that far ahead at the time. And, and then you know, so, uh, but we, you know, it's funny. We did talk about possibly being foster parents, um, before we even decided to be parents. So even when we were dating, we would talk about how there's all these people in the world. Who are we to bring other children to the world when there's other people who need parents? So we, t we had these conversations before we got married, obviously completely clueless as the one meant to be a parent. But I mean, those are conversations we had and, uh, and Lisa was serious. She was like, you know, I may not want to have kids. And she, I think she was burnt out. She did a lot of babysitting for kids, uh, you know, spending time with kids. It's one thing to babysit kids. Another thing when it's your own kids, when it's your totally. own kids, it's a completely different ball game. And, uh, but yeah, after, after our schooling was done and we kind of got along the way there, we said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And so you have two biological <clears throat> children, my sister, Shana and I. Um, and really even when we were growing up, you always had kind of an open door policy. I mean, we had a foreign exchange student, um, we opened our home or you opened our family home to, um, different extended family members at different times. Um, and then really when I moved out of the house and was in college was when you guys got really serious about foster care. How many foster care kids, some, some shorter, some longer, um, have you had, over the course of time? I, I, I don't know the exact number we have had, um, you know, cause we've had some of them for respite. So they'd be over for like a, a night or two or a couple Just nights for a or short something. kind yeah, of, yeah. And, and that type of thing. But we certainly had, um, you know, one, one, uh, child that we had for, you know, a, a couple of months and then, uh, you know, Wade and Vance and Shelby that we've had for extended periods of time. So there'd be four that we've had for 
longer periods of time. And, um, and then just, you know, Shelby, who's with us now and, and, uh, with, um, you know, other Wade and Vance. So yeah, the, the, the ones that we've had, so it's, it's four, I guess that we, uh-huh. for very, more longer very, yeah, term. Yeah. That, that we've had relationships with and continue to have relationships with. Yeah. <clears throat> and that first one, after a couple months with, with you and mom, um, re- he returned home to his, um, to his birth family and it was a much healthier situation, a situation where um, it felt good about them going back. And then, uh, Wade and Vance are are my my brothers, my foster brothers, um, and we're still very much connected with them and their and uh, with Vance's uh, kids and everything too, and his girlfriend Alyssa, and then um, Shelby. Shelby has she been with you guys longer than she hasn't been with you at this point? Uh so she was with us at nine, and she's sixteen now. Okay, so not, so not, not quite, quite there, but yeah. mm-hmm. but certainly a considerable chunk of her life what what is to you the greatest joy and the greatest frustration of parenting and foster biological whatever let's just lump that all into one you know kids are kids um and parental love is parental love regardless of the official title associated with it or the official legal um definition what's what's the greatest joy and the greatest frustration you find in being a parent? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it just comes from love. You love your kids so much. I mean, you love your kids and so when they do well, it's, it's just gives you joy. And when your kids, you know, bump their head against the wall and continue <laughs> to do things that they shouldn't do. It's frustrating, you know, and that's the thing about all human beings, but it's just to a, a greater I, I extent, I think with your children is, you know, and of course you love them so much. So you, you love all your children and you want them to do well. And I think it's sad when, you know, one of the things that we've said through this process is self-destruction is a terrible thing to watch. I mean, you can't change it. If someone's engaged in self-destructive behavior and you love them like crazy, you want them to change that path, but th- that's their choice. And by the same token, um, when you see them, their eyes open up and they see another direction and, and, and they, they turn that corner or they make good decisions or they grow and they do well with their job and with their relationships and stuff, that's a joy you can't even, can't even fathom. So it, it's, it's, I think it's just based on love. You love them so much. And when you love someone, you want them to, um, you want them to excel, but then you're as a parent, you're powerless, you know, as little babies and stuff, you can kind of watch them a little bit and there's, you know, only so many things that can go wrong, but as they get older, um, you know, the joy and the, um, and the frustration can both, I guess, you know, increase in its own way. Yeah. Now, now you and mom just had a big anniversary. You just celebrated 40 years of marriage. Um, you mentioned you basically got married as babies, so you're not that old. Um, but 40 years of marriage. I mean, I know that your marriage is an example to so many. It certainly is an example to um, Rachel and I. Um, how do you do it? I mean, the average marriage these days in America is eight years. So to be married 40 years, um, statistically speaking, is an anomaly. How do you stay committed to one another? How do you stay 
in love with the same person for four decades? I mean, that's, that's a subjective question, you know, so everybody and everybody is married. It's, it's, you're bringing two completely different people together. And, uh, I don't know how anybody stays married if they don't have God in their life. I honestly yeah. have no idea because it's our common goal of trying to serve, you know, trying to serve God. I mean, we're not that we're great at it, not that, but it's a goal. So I know if she's trying to do that and I'm trying to do that, then our goals kind of merge because we're completely different people with completely different personalities. And, um, but I, I do think that has a lot to do with it. And I do think that commitment has a lot to do with it. I, I mean, we, you know, we had rocky times in the early part of the marriage. And the thing is you have different difficulties throughout your marriage and, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It really is true in your marriage too. So now, I mean, I can't imagine not being with your mom. I mean, there's no possible other person in the world that I would rather be with and going through the challenges of life because we've been through so much. Nobody understands me the way she does. Nobody understands her the way that I do. Nobody has gone through the, the, the challenges and the things together so that I think easier, it gets easier as you get older because, uh, you have that common bond and you have those common goals and all those experiences that you have shared together. And, um, you know, so yeah, I get, I mean, it's, it's different, Every, but everybody has different challenges. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that we've tried to stay on that same path more or less over the years. And I think that that makes it easier. I agree with you wholeheartedly on, on, you know, God being a part of the equation. I, I don't know how people um, stay committed to one another without God uh, in the equation there. When I do premarital counseling, I always talk about a triangle. So picture like an equilateral triangle with a flat bottom and then two sides coming up on the angle there. Um, and I talk about, you know, one spouse being one bottom corner, the other spouse being the other bottom corner, and then God being the corner at the top. And as you move along one side of that triangle and your spouse or your partner moves along the other side of that triangle, um, when you get closer to God, you get closer to each other. And when one or both of you gets further from God, you get further from each other. The closer that you and your spouse get to God, um, the closer you will get to one another. And I think so much of it is exactly what you said. It's about that shared vision, that shared goal, that shared mission. I mean, when you put God as your absolute priority and then put each other's needs before your own in marriage, you really can't go wrong. No, I, I would agree. And I think that's kind of what's kept us on the same the same path and kept us together through that time. And then commitment, something too. you can't, I can't make her be committed to me, you know, and I understand the challenge that people have, you know, so you're divorced or so something else happens that can happen. I, I can't make her love me. I can't, there's nothing to do about that. Absolutely. And, and uh, if, if she, if we choose to have that common goal and, and, and we're, you know, going along that, uh, triangle that you're talking about. I do think it does make it easier, but, um, it's just like raising kids. You know, you don't, you can't control your kids. You can't control your spouse. You know, and it's a blessing if, 
if uh, you know you're on the same path. That's true. That's a really good point. That I mean, you can love God and your spouse can love God, but you still might not see eye to eye, right? And and being in marriage for the long haul takes two committed people. Heck, being in marriage for more than two days takes two committed people. Um, so that's not to to uh, knock anyone who has either been through a divorce or going through a divorce, but um, only to say that marriage for the long haul is possible. And it is possible because of the grace of God. For sure. It is possible. And it can be an amazing thing that you can't, you couldn't have that relationship any other way. You know, it, it's something that is, you know, deeper and, and is certainly valuable. I can tell you from, from my life, it's valuable to my life, from my life, it's indispensable. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want any other way. Vocationally speaking, you are a lawyer specializing in real estate law, and you've had a number of cases recently um, involving um, essentially racism, obviously without disclosing any details of any cases or anything like that. Is that something you can speak to a little bit and, and how that maybe has affected you personally? Yeah. I mean, you know, we talk about various things, but always going to be in a um, general sense. But but when it comes to the cases, I, I think that um, racism and prejudice is something that, you know, that our society and all societies fight with. And we certainly have uh, issues here. I think what's happened recently is I've had some uh, some cases where in a real estate case, it's become more obvious of the discrimination. So before you would see the person before uh, you would decide that, you know, looking at the house or something like that. Sure. And because of COVID, people are buying houses without seeing someone. So I have two cases where everything was fine and dandy and they signed the contract until the African-American person showed up for an inspection. And then the white oh. person all of a sudden said, you know, that's not going to happen. And then started putting the roadblock in the way of it. Well, I think that that, that dark heart was there even before, uh, before that and was around. But now it's being exposed because of a new factual scenario. Instead of just saying, oh, that's a terrible house or, oh, yeah, I might have had a problem with the basement and just trying to talk someone out of buying the house. When you see them, you're talking them into buying because you want the offer. And then you realize that, oh, no, you know, oh, no, I'm selling it to someone whose race I would not approve of. How horrible is that? How yeah. dark is that? And that's uh, so, yeah, I mean, if and I decided a long time ago, I mean, if I see discrimination in, um, you know, in, in, in the workplace or someone I'm around, I just I'm not going to tolerate it. I have no use for it. And I will work that case as hard as I can to, to bring justice out of it, because I think it's just abhorrent. It's just a horrible thing, and I think it has to be fought hard. And I think when people make excuses for it, I, I just I don't have the, I don't have the patience for it. And if I can get the facts together on that, yeah, I, I feel I feel good about taking those kind of cases and fighting for that kind of injustice. What encouragement would you give to our listeners about um, working as unto the Lord, regardless of what their their day job or their vocation is? Do you think it really is possible to to do anything for the glory of God? I not only think it's possible to do anything for the glory of God, I think 
I think you can do anything. I think you can do everything for the glory of God, whatever it is. I mean, you know, you and I were uh, uh, waiting to go to Honduras here, and there was a woman who was cleaning up after everybody in the airport, and she made sure that people were being blessed, and she was uh, showing the love to them. And if you asked her, it didn't take much, and she'd tell you about Jesus. She did it for the glory of the Lord, and she also had a way with people to tell people about the joy she had. And that's really working for the Lord. I mean, that's a that's a cleaning up job, the jobs that nobody wants to have, whatever somebody would say. But I, I think in any job you have, whatever it is you do, if you're working unto the Lord and you're trying to do that, you're working with people. And who are people? They are they're made in the image of God. So everybody you work for, everybody you work in front of, if you understand that and you take that to heart, we all have that ability. Because if I'm working for someone else, no matter who they are, and if I'm cleaning up after them or fighting in court for them or you know, preaching or, or working in IT or working on a program, whatever it is you're doing for someone, you're trying to make people who are made in the image of God and improve their lives. So yeah, I absolutely think you can. You know, it's, it's it's awesome that you brought up the the custodian at the airport. Um, so so my dad and I were part of a team that went down to um, Honduras this past summer. Uh, we actually will be taking uh, two teams um, this this coming year, early in 2022. Um, you can shoot me an email at zdunlap at berkeleyfirst.org if you want to hear more about that opportunity. But I mean, it was an amazing trip. I mean, we had these different revival events. We did food distribution, Bible distribution, um, constructed a playground, celebrated 58 baptisms. Um, but it is entirely possible that this wonderful woman working as a custodian in the Miami airport witnessed to way more people going about her daily tasks that week than we did. Um, on a mission trip in Honduras. And that just goes to show that, you know, you can shine the light, you can share the love, you can work as unto the Lord, no matter what it is that you're doing. Dad, I know mission trips specifically have always, maybe not always, but as long as I've been around, which is 34 years now, um, have always kind of been a part of what you did. Can you speak to um, the value of short-term mission trips um, and uh, maybe a little bit about your experience recently in Honduras? Um, yeah, actually, it hasn't always been a part of my life. And uh, it was actually your uncle who talked me into it when you were a kid. Oh, cool. Uh, and I, so I was probably in my 30s and he said, yeah, you can do this short-term mission trip and come along with us. And because I did help with youth. And I hadn't ever done anything like that. And so I did go on a trip with them and I ended up doing, you know, 10 years of mission trips, short-term mission trips. So, I mean, I, I have to be clear. I mean, there are people who are committed missionaries that are there all the time. I've never sure, done sure. that. Uh, but I've gone with groups and, uh, and then had, you know, teenagers or other people that, uh, you know, we've got, come alongside. I, I love it. And I think what happens is, you know, from that first trip that I went on to the last trip we went on to Honduras, I realized that part of who I am is being a Christian and trying to be a follower of Jesus. And part of who I am is being an American uh, who lives where I live. 
When mm. you take yourself and you go into another culture, it helps you also look at yourself and say, wow, how much of me is really American and how much of me is really Christian? Some of these things I think are Christian when I see a Honduran believer, when I see a Mexican believer, when I see someone else following the Lord in their culture, I realize that, you know, I have to, I have to look at myself differently. You know, some of these things that I, that I value, I just value because it's a cultural value. It's not a Jesus value. And then when you read the scripture, of course, that's a first century, you know, Palestine, you know, world, which is completely different. And, uh, so that, that is a, you know, huge thing, but just watching people serve and love and praise the Lord, uh, with the same Holy spirit in another place on another side of the world is inspiring. And the people that we worked with in Honduras just amaze me. The self-sacrifice that they have, the horrible conditions that they're in, the way that they love the Lord with all their heart, the way they give everything they can to make sure that, you know, the gospel reaches other people and people's lives are changed and just the way that they value that. And um, I just feel like I'm way too ambivalent about it, you know, compared to what I'm seeing you know, when, when I, when I go on a, on a trip like this, I think they realize the desperation that we all have and how we really need Jesus. And to see that is, um, it's inspiring. I oftentimes ask people in this church folks podcast, um, what brought you to the church in general? And then what brought you specifically to Berkeley first? Obviously a big part of what brought you to Berkeley first is that your, your idiot son is the pastor here. Um, but, uh, can you share a little bit about kind of the value of being a part of church community? Well, I mean, First of all, you're not an idiot, son. So let me just correct you on that. <laughs> secondly, you're a darn good preacher. So that does help. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you've been in other churches. This is not the first church that you've been a part of. And we have visited other churches. Uh, but this particular church and this particular time in our lives and everything has been great. And the people of Berkeley First are amazing. And we, love to be a part of this community. We love to be a part of this church. And we really see how God's spirit is just moving through so many people in so many ways. We feel like it's just a real, uh, people are free to be real here. And I think this church has also moved with the crazy times that we have and kept the main thing, the main thing. So um, don't sell yourself short. You're, you're a good pastor and you do a great job of it. And we get something out of it. And and uh, I get something out every week, even though you're preaching, you're still preaching the truth and the truth is the truth and I need to hear the truth. So, um, but I, I, but Lisa and I both love coming here and, you know, Shelby loves coming here and it's a, uh, it's a great group of people. It really is. This is, this really is a good, it's a very special place. It is a really special place and it is, um, this is, a, this is in many ways a family church. Um, it's a church, you know, for families with, with, you know, with kids or youth or whatever. It's, it's a church, um, where we are family. Um, you know, and I feel that, you know, with, with our Birmingham campus too, and, and I'm sure that, you know, the folks who, who worship and serve primarily at Birmingham feel that same way about Berkeley that, you know, we, we're an extended family, you know, um, I might be kind of the weird cousin on staff or whatever. Um, but we are family together. And I think that's just a beautiful thing. And, and it really is 
super fun um, to be, you know, not only your son and, and your family by blood, um, but to be brothers together in Christ and to serve alongside one another in making a difference in this world. I mean, you just can't beat it. Agreed. Agreed. And that's the cool thing about being a parent. One of the things you said about the joy is that as your kids get older, it is more of a brother than, than being, you know, the father and son. And I think that's, that's a cool thing that you can have, uh, as your kids, you know, get older and you just say, it's a different relationship, you know, it's a different relationship and, and it's been awesome. Was there anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to touch on or, uh, any closing words of wisdom or encouragement you'd like to offer our listeners today? No, not really. I think uh, just, you know, if you don't know God, seek him. You know, if you earnestly seek him, you will find him. And if you feel like, you know, I can't do it, you can do it. And God can give you the power. So he'll, he'll be there. If you look for him, he'll find you, you know, and, and he's always been there. I guess that's the thing that really is hitting me a lot more now. He's always there. I just have to keep looking for him and trying to do his will. And that's the same. It applies to everybody. But I think I already said that anyway, so you can cut that part. No, still true. <laughs> still good. Love you, Dad. Love you. That concludes this episode of Church Folks. Remember, the church has nothing to do with brick, mortar, or carpet. It's the people the body of Christ from all over the world. This is just one of their stories. You can find out more about Birmingham and Berkeley First on our websites, fumcbirmingham.org and berkeleyfirst.org. Whether it's through our church or some other church, we hope you take the time to be a part of beloved community, grow in your faith, and share your stories. Peace.